Today's episode is really special. Why is it special? You have to listen as to why it is so special, but hint, I have been validated. This episode is fantastic with so many crime trivia facts, amazing statistics, and just a great conversation with a forensic accountant or behavioral accountant who has had such a breadth of experience. It is a longer episode, but I promise you will learn so much. You will learn about the forensic accounting programs at Salisbury University, and they are fantastic. His professor told him his idea about white collar crime was deficient. He proved it differently. Let's get started. Okay, you guys, we have a great dude in fraud. And actually, you know what is so funny is I was typing the other night and I realized I typed great dud in fraud. And I'm going (laughs) to. No, 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 no. David Weber is not a great dud in fraud. He is a great dude in fraud. And um, before we start with your background, we're going to do a quick speed round. And you are not a big podcast person, are you? No, I am not. By the end of this, you will be a big podcast person. I promise you, because they are so much fun. And your students are going to listen to this and they're going to love it. Okay. Well, they're going to have to listen to this because they're going to be assigned to. And so you're going to suddenly see like another hundred people download this month. And you're going to be like, what's going on? But it's because (laughs) these kids will all be listening to the podcast. Right, kids? (laughs) Okay. Okay. First question. Are you a Mac or a PC person? Oh, PC for sure. Okay, you're only, I think it's two out of 10 or PCs. Interesting. Okay. Um, who is a famous crook or cop that you want to go to dinner with? Famous crook or cop? Yeah, that you want to go to dinner with. I, okay, so I'm not answering it in a speedy way. That's um, okay. But the person that I want to go to dinner with, um, hang on, I'm pulling up his name right now because I'm just momentarily drawing a blank. Right. I want to go to dinner with special agent Frank Wilson of what today is known as IRSCI, but at the time was known as the Internal Revenue Service Intelligence Unit. And he was the one who led the investigation both into Al Capone and into the kidnapper of Charles Lindbergh's son and is the father of modern white collar law enforcement. Oh, my God. Okay, this is new to me. So I so I just while we're on the subject. Sorry, it's long for a speed round, but I just got my hands from the Treasury Department on the original report of investigation into Al Capone on Treasury Department letterhead, which my students are going to be assigned to read in their first week in school. Oh, my God. I have to. In in case there is any question that white collar crime can be used to address very bad, no good things. That is an example of of how we use white collar crime today or how we can use white collar crime and fraud fighters today to address issues of major public concern other than stealing money. Okay, I love that. Okay. And Frank Wilson and Frank Wilson was the director of the intelligence unit of the Department of the Treasury at the time. Oh, that's amazing. Okay. So um, <laughs> what is the best money you have ever spent professionally? The best money I've ever spent professionally. It's got to be all your education, doesn't it? You know, thank you. I'm thank you for. I was going to be like, is it my car? Is it my computer? No, I mean, in hindsight, 
if you go back to the very beginning, the, the antecedent of David Weber's career, which we haven't talked about yet, um, there is no question that the law degree was the item that allowed me to fish rather than eat fish. Oh, because I, I have because I've had like 17 jobs in my life. And the one common thread in all of them is that the JD has allowed me to do that. And Not necessarily being a lawyer, but it gave me the skill set to know how to fish. Well, so this is interesting because we've we like honestly, David and I were on like for an hour before we start recording this because we had so many things to talk about. But like I've told my kids, please don't become lawyers for the longest time. But then recently I said to my daughter, even though I think my son would be maybe better because he argues better. It's like, maybe you should get a JD because it opens doors that you just normally can't get open, even though I don't think that's right. Personally, I've seen a lot of JDs who can't, the door is opened and they can't do anything. That's because they went to the Harvard School for the Gifted. But um, <laughs> but, uh, but but seriously, I mean, if I can tell the story, because it's, it's, it's a mind boggling story. So I, I was a cop. I mean, that's how I started my career. I was in ROTC in college and my father, uh, wrote me a letter. I mean, a handwritten letter. I mean, it's just, you know, pre-email days. I mean, 1990s, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very early 1990s, maybe late 1980s. And he, uh, he was not a talker and definitely not a writer. And he wrote me a note. And what he did was he clipped an ad from the New York times or the wall street journal, which, and I still have the ad and his letter. Um, and it was an ad from an accounting firm which was then the big eight and the accounting firm ad was two plates on you know a restaurant table and one of the plates had this beautiful fish and one of them had a fishing hook and the firm was saying you know and at our firm we recommend you choose the plate on the right because we help our clients succeed and thrive but wait for it what firm ad was it Oh my God. Uh, well, it's one that's no longer in business. That's correct. It's one that's no longer in business because they did something they shouldn't have done. Arthur, Arthur Anderson. It was Arthur Anderson. Yes. It was Arthur Anderson. And my dad wrote me this note and he said, you know, dear son, I'm paraphrasing. Um, I saw this ad and I thought of you, whether you become a military officer, um, which I did, whether you become a police officer, which I did, that if you go to law school, that you will always be able to fish, that you can be anything you want to do. He never thought that I would be a professor, but he said, you could be a teacher, you could be a lawyer, you could be a military officer. And, and I read it and I said, what a bunch of baloney. <laughs> and, you know, psh, crumpled it up. And then six days later, my dad died unexpectedly. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. No, but I mean, you know, but I'm telling you how it happened. And I pulled it out of the garbage and I registered for the S, the LSATs. Wow. Okay. That's More out of a sense of obligation. And I showed up to law school. I was working full-time as a federal law enforcement officer. Uh, I, you know, of course thought like, oh, criminal law, woo, woo, woo. That's what I'm going to be interested in. And my very first day in my very first time in law school, I found that contracts and property were the most interesting classes. That's amazing. 
Okay. And it's, and it, ever since then, I mean, it's, it's all been about business and fraud. It hasn't been about criminal law. And, you know, and it was Arthur Anderson that I had to thank for this and my father. Oh my God. That gives me like the shippers. That's and I mean, literally I end up as the chief investigator for the Securities and Exchange Commission in part because of the Arthur Anderson ad. And that is, you know, I mean, an incredibly delicious fact when you think about that and what I went through at the commission and Madoff and all these other things. I mean, I really did get to see, you know, audit firms end up in big trouble during my tenure, as we also talked about offline. Oh my gosh. Okay. So last question for the speed round is- Which was the non-speed round. The non yeah. last question for the non-speed round. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, and I know what your answer is going to be to this, because we're going to talk about this. Who is better at embezzling, women or men? Absolutely women. There's no question that it's women. Okay. And why do you say that? Because I can prove it scientifically, yes. which is something that no one before me has been able to say, and I can now prove it. And when I was doing this research, and we haven't even talked about why I'm doing research or what I do, but I was minding my own business, doing research, and I accidentally came across a finding that I was not looking for involving women. And when I found it, I said, oh, this is interesting. And oh, I know a lady who's going to be very interested in it and who talks about pink collar crime all the time. So I'm going to send her my paper. And, and I think like, I got it like at 11 p.m. my time. Because I was like super, I mean, I was checking my math. I wanted to make sure that I hadn't done something wrong in SPSS. For those of you in the podcast world who don't know what SPSS is, it's a statistical research package that is owned by IBM. Um, it didn't used to be an IBM product, but IBM bought whoever owns SPSS. And uh, it's what many people in the doctoral world, PhD world use. And I needed to make sure the math was right. But once I was convinced that it was right, uh, I sent it to Kelly at like 11 at night. And I'm confident that this is right. And we're going to talk about it today. Oh my God. It's so amazing. Okay. So like, yes, it was a longer speed round and yes, we have to do a, a, an official introduction. So um, David Weber, and I'm, I'm looking at your LinkedIn and it just says, I'm going to tell you because everyone knows how much I love LinkedIn. It just says forensic accounting professor. That's it, dude. You got to make it better than that because that doesn't excite people. You got to make it, you have, so tell everyone your I think it's pretty exciting. I like being a forensic accounting professor. I'm sorry, but that doesn't, I think numbers are sexy. I think accounting is sexy. I, I think fraud is all about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And so if you're a professor of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, that is like the dean of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. That's the only thing I'm not as a dean, but I, I think it's pretty exciting. So what am I? Is that what you want to know? Yeah. What's your, what's your per career progression? I am... Um, a soon-to-be tenure-track professor at the Purdue School of Business, um, Salisbury University, and I am currently a professional track faculty member, meaning I am on a, I, I have a multi-year contract, but I'm not tenured, and I am in the middle of my own doctorate uh, as part of the deal, and as soon as my doctorate is conferred, I will then go on to the tenure line um, but I need to do this. And in fact, the research that we're going to talk about today on pink collar crime is coming from my research. So I am, so I'm a professor at the Purdue School of Business, which is one of the University System of Maryland state schools. It's one of the 12 schools. And it is the only one in the University System of Maryland that has a specific program in fraud and forensic accounting. 
Um, it's also one of the only schools in the country that has a program like this at the undergraduate level. There are many programs that are at the master's level or at the MBA level, but for undergrads, to my knowledge, it's one of only two. And, and not only is it one of only two, but making it even more specific, we're the only program in the country that has an experiential learning component where the students are actually working on real criminal investigations. Um, so my other job, I mean, I have like 17 jobs, uh, but my other job that we are doing as part of my teaching is that I am a sworn law enforcement officer in both Maryland and Virginia. Um, I am uh, an assistant Commonwealth attorney in Virginia, and I am a state's attorney special investigator in Maryland. Um, and the school, Salisbury University and Purdue School of Business, is on the eastern shore of the Chesapeake. So if you're looking at a map and you see the Chesapeake Bay, we're bounded by the Chesapeake Bay on the west, and we are bounded by the Atlantic Ocean on the east. And the only way that you can get onto the Delmarva Peninsula, which is the Delaware, Virginia, and Maryland Peninsula, is to come across one of two very, very large bridges, um, the, bay, the Chesapeake Bay Bridge in Maryland, or the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel that goes from um, Virginia Beach to the southern tip of the Virginia Eastern Shore. Um, and so unless you're gonna be on a helicopter or a Coast Guard boat or uh, a, a Virginia Marine Police boat, the, really the only way you can get to the Eastern Shore is by this three hour roundabout drive. And so law enforcement is very different on the Eastern Shore of the Chesapeake. And one of the big problems that the Chesapeake Bay Area has is a financial crime problem. And we have obtained federal funding from AmeriCorps, which some of you have probably heard of. It's like Peace Corps, but instead of going to foreign countries and bringing aid on behalf of the US people, um, it's about applying federal resources to underserved communities that could be urban communities like big cities, or in the case of the Chesapeake Bay region, it could be to underserved rural communities. And so the students are receiving tuition and pay to investigate financial crime, which can be used towards their tuition. They're getting real life experience that can be used to get their CFE credential or their CPA credential or both because both credentials require a certain number of hours of actual experience. The CPA requires one year, which is about 2000 hours and the CFE requires two years of real experience. Well, this is giving them one of the, one of the years of experience because they're working on real cases under my supervision um, as a sworn law enforcement officer of both states. Uh, so, and, so and, and I'm a lawyer and I am licensed and, and admitted to practice law in both Maryland and Virginia and in a bunch of other places, but for purposes of this in Maryland and Virginia, and I am a certified fraud examiner and I am a member of the Maryland Association of Certified Public Accountants. Uh, and, you know, so this, this is what I do. I live and breathe fraud. Well, and, and Kelly Paxton visited my class last year and served as a mock witness as the mock CEO in a white collar crime corporate governance case when we were all in Zoom land because of COVID and Kelly ably played the CEO and was interviewed by my students as investigators. I'm sorry, I keep interrupting you. No, 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 I was gonna say it was so much fun. And um, like, basically I, I tried to bribe your students. Successfully, I, I, a number of them, only one team out of the seven teams uh, declined your bribe. <laughs> and I only learned about it because the one team that declined it did write in their memorandum of interview of you 
that they were uh, accosted. <laughs> uh, and that led me to, to have a conversation with the class. And until we had that conversation, apparently some of them didn't think there was anything wrong with that. Well, yeah, I just, I had to do it. It just kind of like came to me one day when I was going to do it. I just had to do it. And I was kind of shocked that people are just like, that no one said, um, that would be inappropriate, don't you think? And so, yeah. So, they, so Kelly was playing the role of the CFO of a sport, a sportswear, a publicly traded sportswear company. This was a, uh, a mock case study that was created by the, the National Association of Corporate Directors and um, the, uh, what is it called, the, the IIA, the Internal Institute of Internal Auditors. Right, yeah. the Institute of Internal Auditors. And it was, there were a bunch of groups that were part of making this, but what we did is we used real people like Kelly to play the, the role of the witnesses to allow the students to then interview the witnesses and prepare a report of investigation for those of you who are listening. Um, so they could get a simulated report of investigation before they worked on a real case uh, with potential to screw something up. So I wanted them to first do it this way. And Kelly offered gift cards uh, to the store, to the investigators. And apparently seven, six out of the seven teams accepted the gift cards. And, and it was incredible because they were all recording this on Zoom. I didn't have to look at the recordings. I could see from their faces that they understood they screwed up when we were back in class discussing this. Uh, but I wouldn't have even known if the one team hadn't written it in their MOI. Well, and I've been in the private sector and like, you know, it's, it's a lot of times it's a nice thing to do, but you know, there was also, there was, you know, a carrot. <laughs> you know, and when I, work. when I was at the OCC and the FDIC, we weren't, we weren't even allowed to accept a can of soda or a cup of coffee. I mean, we weren't allowed to accept anything. Yeah. And, uh, we, we weren't even, allowed. I'm sorry. That would be the law dog behind me barking. Oh my God. So my attorney friend, she calls hers her paralegal. <laughs> is it a paralegal? What kind of dog is it? It is a schnoodle. Oh, a schnoodle. I had a doodle. He's a schnoodle and his name is Milton. Milton, like his father, is a nice Jewish dog. And uh, am I allowed to say that on a podcast? I don't want to be called yeah, yeah. That, you know, yeah, yeah. an anti-Semite when I am a Semite. Um, but Milton has, uh, Milton is a nice Jewish dog, but unfortunately, uh, the COVID Zoom land recorded in one's home, I've reached about my limit and we are, we are returning to campus this, uh, this fall. So this will be some of my last from home. Oh, now we've got the second show to join in. Oh my God. The second show thank you. Thank you, <laughs> okay. listeners. The schnoodles have quieted down. Okay, so let's talk about what I am just so incredibly excited about is your research. And because this is like, this has been my life. And um, to certain groups out there who think that I am after women, I'm not after women. I show that women do embezzlement better and now you can prove it. So tell us about your study. So uh, one of the things that I'm doing in my doctorate, um, I'm receiving, I am not receiving a PhD. I'm receiving what's called a doctor of business administration and a, and a, and a, and a DBA program in business is more broad based. So instead of a PhD where you're hyper-focused on, on a single discipline, I am 
still focused on one discipline, which is accounting, but you get a much broader base of every discipline within business. And one of the disciplines... You know, they haven't barked all day. No, okay. we've been on the we've been on the call for an hour and a half. <laughs> and they weren't barking at all, okay? Nope. But I'm only talking about the most important thing I have to say, and they have chosen that now is the time to bark. Uh, so your research. Uh, I'm sorry, now my wife is texting me like mad because oh. <laughs> because, the, because the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit just struck down a Maryland statute in one of the jurisdictions that I am uh, a special investigator for uh, on constitutional grounds. Um, so for those of you who do not know, among the places that I am a sworn Maryland law enforcement officer for is the state's attorney's office for Worcester County, Maryland. And for those of you who don't know where Worcester County, Maryland is, you certainly know the largest community, which is Ocean City, Maryland. And Ocean City, Maryland is what I would liken to the Las Vegas of the East Coast. And it has all of the problems with fraud that Las Vegas has. Uh, it also had a statute that prohibited the bearing of breasts as being a misdemeanor. And uh, according to the multiple text messages that I just received from my wife, the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit, which is Maryland and Virginia and North Carolina, has just struck down the Ocean City statute as being unconstitutional. Well, well. Okay. okay. So not only do women engage in more white collar crime, but now in theory, they could do so topless. Um, okay. So back to uh, the, 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 the study at hand. So one of the classes that we were expected to take in this doctoral program is called organizational behavior. Uh, some schools call organizational behavior industrial psychology. And what industrial psychology organizational behavior is, is the study of behavior in the workplace. We're not interested in what people do at home. We're not interested in what they do on the street. We're interested in what people do in the workplace. So obviously we, Kelly, me, you, the listeners out there, as fraud examiners, as forensic accountants, everything we do has something to do with the workplace. And, and general, you know, if we look at uh, Professor Sutherland's fraud triangle, and we talk about pressure, rationalization, opportunity, those are all behavior-based standards within the workplace, okay? So I'm in this class, every class in a doctoral level class, you are doing research constantly because it is preparing you for your dissertation. You are constantly proposing research ideas. You are constantly having them sliced apart by your professors and told that you're dumb. Uh, and you, and it is, it's almost like law school, but instead of law school, it's science. And so for me, as somebody who's been a forensic accountant and a lawyer my whole life, being, uh, immersed in this academia inquiry is the same as law school. I'm learning a different language. I'm learning how to do things. So obviously everything I want to do, my dissertation, it's all going to be fraud related. I mean, that's what I do. 24-7 is fraud, fraud, fraud. So I make a proposal, and the proposal is that I study um, white-collar crime and why people do what they do, and I'm told that it's a stupid idea, that there's already been research on this. I mean, I'm, I, he didn't say it was stupid. I mean, he used different words, like, like uh, deficient. I, my idea was deficient. 
Okay. And, and in fact, he, he was of the view uh, that, that the literature that was out there, the prior studies showed that my theories were the opposite of what I think they are. So my theory was that age, meaning your age in years, and that education, meaning how far you progress in education, high school, college, master's, or greater, would predict uh, fraudulent behavior, that you would be more likely to engage in fraud, and that you would be more likely to engage in more severe fraud by dollar value if you were somebody who was older or somebody who had more education. The, the studies in organizational behavior said the opposite. They said that if you were somebody who was older, you were going to behave better. They said that if you had an education, you would be less maladjusted and you would therefore behave better in the workplace. But most of us who are fraud fighters know that this is just simply not the case. And we know that it's not the case anecdotally because we know that the greater education leads to the ability to circumvent internal controls or that the greater education may lead to being in a higher level position that the controls are not designed for. And that age, typically it's the same thing. That while of course there are new employees who are older, that generally speaking, the age can be substituted for seniority within the organization. And we also know, even though they're not statistically uh, valid, we know from the ACFE surveys that that's what the data in their surveys shows. But it definitely is what I experienced. So like we didn't talk about my prior jobs and whatever, but just so everybody knows, if you haven't met me before, although probably a bunch of you have, um, I am the former Assistant Inspector General for Investigations at the Securities and Exchange Commission. So I am the SEC's former Chief Investigator. Um, prior to that, I am the former Chief of Enforcement Unit 1 at the FDIC. And prior to that, I was the Special Counsel for Enforcement at the Office of the Controller of the Currency which is the Treasury Bureau that regulates the national banking system and foreign banks licensed to do business in this country. So I, I've seen a lot of fraud in my days. And most of the big, big, big fraud was not done by little tellers. It was done, you know, what's, oh, so I'll ask you a question, Kelly. What do you think is the best way to rob a bank? Oh, that's like, it's like a joke. It's like, it's not to go in and rob it. It's to, you know, be the CEO. Right. The best way to rob a bank is to own one. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And that's really true. And, and I'll tell you, you know, and it's how you and I met. I've put a couple female CEOs in banks in prison. Yeah. And so I know that it's not just male CEOs that are, you know, engaged in massive embezzlement schemes because I've looked them in the eyes and, and said bye-bye to them at their, at their <laughs> sentencing. Um, so uh, anyway, so I'm in this class. He tells me my idea is deficient. Um, the literature says the opposite, and I, uh, uh, I don't agree with this. And so how do I go about scientifically disputing his view and this prior literature? Okay. So in organizational behavior, most of the time they're getting data from survey instruments where they're asking employees about their behavior. And there is a number of problems with that type of survey particularly when we're dealing with uh, bad behavior. And that is because many, we're not just talking about them lying because they don't want to admit it. We're saying even uh, all things being equal, if, if it's totally anonymous and nobody's going to find out, people still don't want to tell the truth on a survey. And that's called a, uh, it's called a social bias. And it's, and it's a social bias because people don't want to look at themselves as scumbags. So it, you know, it's the same thing with stealing things. In the, in the workplace, nobody has problems stealing copy paper 
or bringing paper clips home. But if there was a $1 bill in the supply closet, probably a lot less people would take the $1 bill, even though it's worth the same amount as the paper clips, because they don't want to see themselves as a thief. And so the problem with these social bias surveys is that they're just not going to say the truth of what they did or they didn't do. And the surveys are not going to be big enough. You know, so the survey is not going to have enough observations to be statistically valid when we have millions and millions and millions of these people in the workplace and the survey is only of a couple thousand people. Okay, so how do we go about proving this? So I come to find that in the organizational behavior workplace psychology field that the U.S. Sentencing Commission data has never really been looked at by the organizational behavior field. And what's valuable about the U.S. Sentencing Commission data is that the data comes from the pre-sentence investigation reports of every defendant after they're convicted in order for it to be used by the sentencing federal judge in deciding what their sentence of incarceration should be in federal prison. So there is a lot of demographic information in this data. And the data is, is, is anonymized, meaning I don't have the person's name, but there's an identifier for every single inmate that's sentenced to federal prison in the US court system. So I was able to pull down hundreds and hundreds of thousands of records of federal crimes with all of these different variables and demographic factors. And the other thing that's very attractive about it is that I can also slice and dice the data by what they were convicted of. So obviously I'm not interested in drugs, uh, but I'm also not interested in fraud where you're stealing out of a mailbox and it's mail fraud or where it's credit card fraud. What I'm interested in is fraud in the workplace. And so the specific statutes that I'm interested in are the statutes that deal with embezzlement because there are specific 18 US code provisions that deal with embezzlement. And by definition, to be convicted of one of those offenses, you have to have worked at the organization you took the money from. It, you can't be on the outside. It's not a fraud of a third party. It means by definition that you're, when we think of Sutherland and the theories we all learned in becoming fraud examiners, um, the definition is that they're trust abusers of their employer. So this statute code in the Sentencing Commission data allows me to only take the observations of those people convicted of trust violations in the workplace. So by definition, it's organizational behavior because it's something that happened in the workplace. So for those of you who are listening, it's funny, academia is funny, uh, and uh, it is. And just like the George Thurgood song, like, uh, you know, what time, what time is it? The clock on the wall says three o'clock, you know, and one of the phrases in the song is, uh, you funny. And then he says, now nah, you funny too. So academia is funny and they don't call it theft or embezzlement. They have a fancy term. They call it counterproductive work behavior. Okay. So uh, this study is about CWB, counterproductive work behavior in the workplace as measured by convictions for embezzlement. And then we are measuring both the count, meaning how many times it's occurred, and we are measuring the severity, which is measured by dollar amount of the loss. And the dollar amounts of the loss are in the data because it dramatically affects your federal sentence, depending on how much you've taken. And the sentencing guidelines reflect that. Uh, so we have everything from very minimal loss to really, 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 really big losses 
uh, somebody like, uh, let's just say, you know, my pen pal, my former pen pal, uh, Bernard Almadoff. Okay, so what we did is we pulled the data down from 2010 to 2015. We had 330,000 records of conviction during that time. Of that 330,000 population, uh, we found, um, and I'm sorry, I have to pull the study up. We found that approximately- uh, 2025. 2025. Yeah. Um, of those people over the five-year period were convicted of embezzlement offenses. I'm sorry, I didn't have the number up. Uh, and 2025 observations is a, is, is enough of enough observations to draw statistical sampling from. And in this case, um, the data included all 94 U.S. district courts in the United States. So this is everywhere from the District of Puerto Rico to the District of the Virgin Islands to the Eastern District of Virginia to the District of Maryland. It's the entire country. This there nothing was excluded. So this is on the federal level the clearest picture we've ever had because nobody's ever used it before, which is shocking. I mean, I can't believe oh, we've ever used it. Before. Tell me, tell me, yes. <laughs> so. We're using math and mad skills and the statistical sampling software called SPSS to test hypotheses. So hypothesis number one is that age is a predictor of embezzlement. I'm sorry, that age is a predictor of CWB. Sorry, I have to speak like a scientist. You know, number two, that education is a predictor of CWB. Um, hypothesis number three, that age moderates education, meaning that there's some type of interaction between age and education, that if you have both of them, that it'll be an even bigger effect, okay? Uh, and then hypothesis number four is that mental illness or emotional disability may predict uh, embezzlement because that, information is also in the pre-sentencing report. And then hypothesis five, the final hypothesis was that prior job history, in other words, job tenure, whether you have good history, bad history, whether you've never held a job, you know, a stable job, that that's gonna affect. And again, I'm counterintuitively, I'm saying that the, the better your job history is, the more likely you're gonna engage in theft. Um, so let me tell you what the study did not find first, and then we'll talk about the cool, the cool stuff. So I was not successful in finding a statistical correlation between mental illness or emotional disability and um, the job categories, okay? But I suspect, and I talk about this in the research, that that is because not every judge used it. And I think the codes were used inconsistently, meaning that for job and mental illness, these were ways that a judge could depart downward from the sentence to be sympathetic to somebody. And I suspect that in many of these cases, they didn't feel like being sympathetic because these people stole a lot of money. And so the code just wasn't in there. Uh, on the other hand, the other variables exist all the time. Okay. You either have education or you don't, and we know how old you are. Okay. And as to those, we did find statistical significance. And we found um, that in both cases, age and education, that they were predictors and that they could explain a, a, a portion of the model did explain 
why people engaged in theft, that there was a, a direct association and that the model was statistically significant. So from a math and statistics and science perspective, I do believe this is the first time that we're having a finding like that. And it directly contradicts all the other research that's out there, which is based on survey data rather than conviction data. Now, for the listeners of Kelly, who are adherents to the pink collar crime, the most interesting piece of it, and the piece that is the benefit of education, right? Because I would have never done it had it not been for getting this doctorate is our professor who was a phenomenal professor. So if he's listening, although I doubt it, <laughs> I'm gonna tell him that the podcast is out there. So he wanted to put us under stress near the end of the semester in our papers to simulate how real academic inquiry works, that things don't happen according to plan, that things change, that data says things you don't want it to do. And so at the last minute for each student, he threw us each a curveball, and, and it was custom to each of us. It wasn't the same curveball, but as to mine, he sent me an email and he said, I want you to add a new variable. I want you to add a control variable for gender. And I was not interested in looking at gender, although I was aware of your theories because you and I are professional uh, acquaintances. And, but so when he said that, I immediately knew that there were people interested in this. And I also knew because I had done some research that there wasn't a lot out there on that, okay? So I was able to very quickly build in gender because again, from a coding perspective, the US Sentencing Commission data is either gonna say M or F, you know, man or female, you know, male or female. But from an SPSS, I have to turn it into, a, into, a, into an equation. We're coding that, that's what's, called a, uh, that's what's called a dummy variable. We're coding that as a zero or a one. You know, we're defining one as, as you know, one is a woman and zero is a man or whatever. I mean, it doesn't matter which way you do it, it as long as you have the definitions ahead of time. Uh, and as soon as we reran the calculations uh, using the gender, we saw some pretty unusual findings. We Drum found. Roll. Drum roll. <laughs> uh, so, what we found, first and foremost, because I hadn't even looked at it, is that over the 330,000 observations broken down to 2025 for embezzlement, we found that by a very significant double digit percentage, that by count, not by severity, but that by count, there were far more women convicted of embezzlement in the US court system in this five-year period than there were men. So it was 56.5% women, and it was 46.5% men. I think those are the numbers, right? Did I get those numbers right? 43.5, 43. Oh, sorry, 43.5. But the point is by, by a more than 10% margin, women were committing the crime. And our model showed that this was statistically significant and that we, we it's called a p-value, but, but the p-value is your, your, your confidence interval and how confident you are, if you were to flip a coin a hundred times, how often could this result come from random, you know, if we did this over and over, is it possible that one flip of the coin would show more women, okay? And what the p-value showed is that there was a confidence interval of 99% that this could not have occurred randomly, that, that this was real, that yes. these numbers were occurring <laughs> like this because there really were more women committing fraud in the workplace than men, not because of some sleight of hand or chance of fate 
that the coin flipped a certain way because we ran it over and over and over again. Okay. And it's, and it's well beyond everybody's heads here, but we even did something called bootstrapping where we sample it over and over and over again to make sure, you know, that, that we had this right. And it showed that, that the confidence interval was accurate and that women had a higher count. What it did not show, which I also thought was interesting, uh, is it, it, it showed that even though the men were the minority, significant minority, that by severity, the men on each offense had a greater severity. So the men were stealing more per offense, but by count were stealing less. If that okay, so that's, that's my hashtag, hashtag men steal more. And, and there's many different you know, theoretical reasons that that could be. One of them could be that women, unfortunately, are still not at the highest levels of, of organizations yet. If we look at the S&P 500 and how many of them are led by a woman, um, I believe there's only, I, th I think there's only one or two. I think Mary, Mary Barra at General Motors is one of the only ones, okay? So the reality is the dynamics are changing, but at the highest levels, if we go back to my theories on age and education, I still think that it's because women are hitting a glass ceiling where they're just not able to steal as much. But what it's also showing is that within the areas they can steal from, they're stealing everything that's not nailed down. Okay, that they're that they're stealing more, and that there may and again this it, I, we can't say that this comes from my research because my research can't show this. This is all theory. But another theory is that women, by virtue of their nature, may be less confrontational, may be less. Uh, meaning, in other words, they're more sneaky. Yeah, they're less likely to draw attention to themselves. Where the men are self-promoting, the men are more aggressive. But these are all theories. We have to prove these later. But these are my operating theories based on having been in this field for close to 30 years. Okay. So when you were saying that, I had a thought that came to my mind. And so I don't, we haven't done this yet. Does it show in the data if they went to trial or they just pled? No, it doesn't show that. Okay. Because I mean, what is it like in Oregon, it's like 2% of cases, federal cases actually go to trial. In my experience, in embezzlement cases, they plea out. I mean, there is a penalty for going to trial. You know, there is, there is a bit of a penalty for going to trial. Okay, so that was interesting. So is that- I, But you know what's interesting? I mean, again, I didn't look for this. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm talking out loud because yeah, for yeah. those of you who don't know, I mean, you're obviously gonna be listening to this on a podcast, but you know we're taping this live. So David Weber is talking out of his ass. Um, <laughs> But, but in, in taking that back, you're right, there is a consequence to not taking the plea. And the consequence in the federal system to not taking the plea is that you lose a three-level downward departure for acceptance of responsibility. So I am stepping back because I didn't look for it, Kelly, but this is, this is what I'm saying. This is why this is such an interesting dissertation topic, because clearly the sentencing data is going to show whether that three-level downward departure took place or not. Clearly, they are not getting it if they went to trial because they clearly did not accept responsibility. So I could go back through the data. I think you should. Okay, so <laughs> tell me in your theory, what is the implication of that? Well, the implication in my experience is that women 
and you know, I mean, there's a little self-selection because people come to me because they know pink collar crime is that women confess. Now I'm going to exclude the narcissist and the psychopaths, which would actually go to your mental health, which doesn't show as a very high percentage of count. And I, I have such a hard time saying this counterproductive work behavior. CWB. I just want to say, yeah, CWB. But I think that like most in, in these cases, again, they're really basic. I mean, you know, this is a forensic accountant. Money's here, money goes here. It's not all over the world. And it's certainly not Enron-esque. I, I, I agree. And I think that in the typical case, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a crime that they're being caught for. And, uh, and perhaps they are more likely to confess. Yeah. Uh, but I don't know. I mean, I, I would be interested. I would be interested to use gender as a control and to see if that three level downward departure changes the percentage of, of what happens or which, so, and absolutely, there's no question. It's not something that I coded for when I did it, but there's no question it's gonna be in the data that I took. So- well, Professor, you have homework. I, I might, I might, well, I, I think I do, I think I do. So this is becoming a potential dissertation topic, which I am obligated to propose and defend, not, defend my dissertation. I'm obligated to propose and defend my proposal this fall. Uh, and this is really cutting edge stuff, okay? I will also share, um, you did not mention the name of the group, but I will, the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners, um, that, that one of the items in my research disproved something that's in their report to the nations, that they also say that men by count um, engage in more embezzlement. And this scientific paper indicates that that is not accurate. And, and not only not accurate, but, but starkly not accurate because they say that significantly more men and that is exactly the opposite of what the sentencing data says. And the, the, the challenge with the sentencing data, uh, and again, we were talking about this offline, but for those of you listening, is that the, the, the United States, each individual state and locality is an extremely disorganized system. And I think that's what Thomas Jefferson wanted. That's what the framers wanted. But one of the negatives of that decentralized system on the local and state government level is that we don't have central repositories of sentencing data that we can look at. So I have what I believe is the only centrally located repository for embezzlement at the nationwide level. I don't think it's gonna exist anywhere else. I would be very curious, again, that there's so many things that could be done with this. I would be very curious to see if any of the EU countries have data. I would be very curious to see if some of the, the Nordic countries where women have been in more senior roles for longer would have similar, would have similar findings to the US Sentencing Commission data. I would be very curious if such data existed to see what it would be like in the developing world. Uh, because I, I know from, again, looking at the reports of the nations and the ACFE data, they're clearly, at least based on their surveys, there are significant regional differences among the regions, the Asia Pacific region, uh, Europe, Russia, Africa, and, and North America. And I, I would even be curious to see if Canada keeps the records. I mean, I'm very interested in this. And, uh, and I knew that you would be just the woman who would be as excited as me, <laughs> maybe more excited. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And that, that, that is like part of the other thing is like, so you're looking at federal, 
And I know that a lot of embezzlement, I'm going to say smaller embezzlement cases, go to locals. And again, the smaller ones are generally, anecdotally, not scientifically, from Kelly, they are women. Yeah, they're and bank so, tellers. They're escrow officers at a real estate closing office. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. So, But again, that's all anecdotal. We can't prove that today. Right, right. And then there's the whole other statistic, which is, only 15%, they say, of embezzlement cases are turned over to law enforcement. Because, like, you know, there are businesses who don't want anyone looking at their books. It's just, you know, it's, oh, it's worse than an audit. No, it is worse than an audit. I mean, the, the analogy I'll give you, because I talk to my students about it, is you guys, the listenership, all know about Bridgegate and Chris Christie and what went on in Bridgegate. This has nothing to do with Bridgegate, but it's connected with Bridgegate, when the FBI was investigating civil rights, whether people's rights were violated by you know, being stuck on the bridge for three days and people giving birth on the bridge, that that was a civil rights violation. When the FBI was investigating that, um, they were investigating the chairman of the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey who controlled the bridge and who was a Christie appointee. And as part of that investigation, they started investigating United Airlines, um, UAL, the public ticker, because it, it appeared that United Airlines engaged in a pay to play to have its gate fees reduced. And in order to do that, they started creating a custom flight from Newark International Airport to Columbia, South Carolina, where the chairman of the Port Authority happened to have his summer home. And that frequently he would be the only person on the plane, even though it was a supposedly regularly scheduled flight and that they were running a 737 with a full crew for a passenger of one. Uh, and when the FBI executed the search warrant at United Airlines, United Airlines had a brand new CEO who had just become the CEO. And he had just become the CEO because of the debacle with the guy, the doctor getting dragged off the plane and all that. So this guy had been in his position for something like two weeks. And when the FBI showed up, he had a heart attack. Oh my God, I did not know that. Yeah, no, that's why I'm telling, sorry, it was a long windup, but I'm telling it the way I told it because this new CEO had nothing to do with it. And he had come from Amtrak. I think he was the Amtrak CEO or something. He had nothing to do with Bridgegate and he had nothing to do with the Port Authority. And he was the brand new CEO after the last CEO got kicked out because of this debacle over dragging the doctor off the plane. And when the FBI showed up, it caused such havoc at United Airlines' headquarters that the guy has a heart attack. <laughs> That's what happens when people are rummaging through your stuff and you're trying to run a business. It can be extremely disruptive to your business. I can tell you that as the former chief investigator of the SEC, it's as disruptive as it can get. You're, you're there to make money. Your operational goal is to run your business, not respond to the regulators or law enforcement. Yeah. Oh, my God. Okay, so this is, we're, we're kind of coming to wrapping this up, and this is really kind of funny. So I feel like we're just getting started. I know, we're going to have you back, don't worry, we are so going to have you back. So you call yourself a behavioral accountant, and I yeah, love so, so, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, I love that. Explain why you say you are a behavioral accountant. So, I mean, this is going to sound stupid, so I, again, have to credit this to the professor. I didn't even know what I was, okay? I didn't even know what I was. I've been a spotted cat for 23 or 24 years. And I didn't know I was a cat and I didn't know I had spots. 
And then one day I'm in the class, we're in behavioral organizations, I'm in a doctoral program, I've been a practicing lawyer in my third decade. And I'm like, you know, fraud examination, this is what we do. We look at people's behavior. We look at why they do things. And the professor just looks at me and he's a younger guy. I mean, he's younger than us. Okay. Yep. Brilliant, brilliant man. Okay. And he says, oh, that's easy. You're a behavioral accountant. And I was like, oh, <laughs> like I went home and I said to my wife, I'm a behavioral accountant. I'm a behavioral accountant. I'm a cat with spots. I never knew what I was, and now I know what I am. Yeah. Okay. So back to your LinkedIn page, forensic accounting professor slash behavioral accountant. You're going to change that. By the time this comes up, I hope that's on your LinkedIn page because oh, I, I just love it. Okay. Well, the readership, the listenership will have to see. Yeah. I'm not sure anybody, but any, but the people listening to your podcast will even know what that means because I didn't know what it means. We are going to make. And I was the chief investigator of the SEC, and I didn't know what it means. But in hindsight, okay, I think his name was Edwin Sutherland, you know, the father of, of fraud examination. I think he was a psychologist. You know, yeah. That, what's that? Yeah, yeah. No, no. I mean, but I so like it's incredible. I do believe that we are behaviorists. Yeah. Oh. And that is what we are. Everything is about what motivates people to commit crime. And for us, it's what motivates people to commit workplace crime. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Closing out. Do you want, do you have time to watch any TV? What do you want me to watch? Well, no, I don't want you to watch. Is there any sort of, because I'm doing a fraud and pop culture class and I think your students might like this too. Like, is there any sort of crime show or movie that you really like? Okay. My favorite, the big short, you have to love the big short. And no, I haven't watched it. What? I mean, I'm, no, I mean, what do I need to watch something like that for? I've lived this life. I was at the SEC when this was all going on. Well, I was the one who didn't get to see my kids and go to soccer games because I was breathing it. What do I need to watch that for? You have to watch it. True. What do I need to watch that show for to know that Goldman Sachs is a vampire squid? Hey, I just bought that stock. <laughs> Um, okay. Disclosure, disclosure. David Weber is not an owner of Goldman Sachs stock, nor is he advocating for the purchase of Goldman Sachs stock. Uh, it, okay, two two things. Yeah. Um, one of which I was very involved with. Okay. So number one, feature length film, The Laundromat. Oh, I've heard of. I haven't watched that. So okay, awesome. Okay. So I was the technical consultant for that film. And I play a cameo role in the film. And the film is a dramedy about how the law and accounting professions enable the world of secrecy. And, yeah. and it stars Antonio Banderas, Meryl Streep, and Gary Oldman. And I was on the set because it, it deals with the Panama Papers. Uh, we did not shoot in Panama because we would have been axe murdered. Um, so we instead shot in Miami. Um, but, and I do play, and I do play a cameo in the film. So you guys can all see it, but I also have a credit as the technical consultant and helped with the, uh, you know, with the screenplay and stuff like that. So that's number one feature, feature film, uh, the laundromat and that's on Netflix. Uh, second crime series, there go the schnoodles again. They don't want me to tell you about this show. It's a, it's a secret. Um,
It's about dogs. Not about dogs. Uh, if these guys were concerned, yeah, maybe it's about hot bitches. Sorry. Am I allowed to use the word bitches if we're talking about dogs? Anyway, so uh, the show would be uh, Ozark. Oh, yeah. Okay. And yep. so one of the questions that I always ask students, and of course I was the leading and money laundering. Oh, my God. They didn't bark at all when we were on for an hour and a half before we started taping. Like, I just don't understand. Like, it's, it's my one moment of fame on iTunes, and they are taking it from me. I was going to be on iTunes, like unblemished. Nobody would even have to see my face. They just hear my voice. And now they hear my schnoodle's voice. Milton's, he's going to have his own like Instagram page, like schnoodle's Instagram. Um, so Ozarks, you know, so I say to my kids, how would you launder money? How would you best launder money? What would you do? Okay. So folks, this is for a different podcast, but you know, these stories are all true. Okay. The number one and number two best ways to launder money are to own a bank. Because yep. if you own a bank, then you control the filing of the CTRs and the SARs. And if you don't want to file them, they don't get filed. And the Treasury Department doesn't have a way to have a shotgun and sit over every bank executive. We find the living beep out of a bank if we catch them. Yep. But if it's done right, we would never catch them. Especially if the SARs or CTRs were only selectively filed. And then the second best way, maybe truly the best way, would be that you would own a casino. Because if you owned a casino and you had slot machines, there would be so much cash coming in on a daily basis that you would be entitled to CTR exemptions under the FinCEN rules. So the CTRs wouldn't actually even get filed. So how would we know whether you really had that much slot activity on a given day unless we were in the casino doing surveillance, which yeah. takes a lot of effort and is really expensive. Yeah. And you can get burned pretty easy. So a casino is about the best way. And here is a hot tip to the listenership. That show is based on real events. And I was down in the Ozarks. In fact, it was one of my very first cases. And like, a lot of the characters in that show are real, like they're real people. I mean, they, you know, they're composites, but they're real people. And it intimately shows how to launder money. And I would suggest if you were interested that that is a great show. <laughs> and it has an evil, evil lawyer who really is evil in real life. Oh my God. Wait, that's the woman, isn't it? It is, Helen. Yes. Oh, gosh, it's just horrific. Sorry. It's hard to hear you over the howling of schnoodles. <laughs> well, okay. So this is this is the good thing because the schnoodles need their food. They need their food. I so need to have food. we promise to have you back. I will have lots of show notes. And I mean, I can't thank you enough for proving finally that women excel in messaging. Thank That's you. That we have a statistically valid sample with a confidence interval of 99% from the US Sentencing Commission itself that shows that women are vastly more prevalent in committing embezzlement, trust offenses in the workplace in the United States by a double digit margin. Yeah, that is just like, I, I, I'm already making the, like the, 
the in my LinkedIn when I post Podcast Tuesday. I don't. I think it's gonna if I can make it like go off with blinking lights or something like pink blinking lights. It needs to be blinking lights. Yeah, it's like Kelly is right. No, it's not gonna say Kelly is right. It's gonna say David proved Kelly is right. <laughs> no, it, it is Kelly was right. So okay, it, it is it is Kelly was right, and it but it this is how. So we are at the cusp of new scientific inquiry. So now we've got a whole bunch of things because I agree with you. I think the downward departure would be fascinating to look at. I think the regional experiences of other nations would be really interesting to look at. I think it would be interesting to take a country similar to ours, like England, and see if we can replicate it to prove that it's not something funky in our data, but that women are stealing just as much in England as they are here. You know, I, I think it's so it's, you know, it's a lot of fun. The world tour, the world tour. And P.S. I got my final grade on the paper today. Yeah, and I got a ninety. A ninety. Okay. He still said certain elements of it were deficient. <laughs> oh my God, those professors. You know. So no, but I mean, I got a ninety. I'm very pleased with it. I so I thankfully so my final grade in the class is a ninety-five. That is amazing. So, so thankfully, since I now know that I am a behaviorist, I am thankful that I got an A in behavioral accounting, in behavioral, organizational behavior. That is awesome. Congratulations. Oh my gosh. Everyone reach out to David. Reach out. And if you have a kid or you have an employee that wants to go to a school and learn about fraud fighting and pay the tuition of a state university, you know, you don't have to go to Harvard, although Harvard doesn't have a program. You could come to Salisbury. You could be five minutes from the beach. And you know what? Someone just asked me that kind of a question along that. And I didn't think of you. And I'm going to go back through my messages and find it. But if someone is listening. No, I was on the same one. I saw that you liked it. And I said, hey, my program. And I linked you. And now you can go back and you can say, hey, not only is his program cool, but I have guest taught. I, Kelly Paxton, have guest taught in his program and served as a mock CEO suspect. And he really does have the kids doing stuff like this. And he's doing cutting edge research on women in crime. He did. Absolutely. Thank you so much, David. Bye. We don't have favorite children or podcast guests, but given David's work with embezzlement statistics, this episode was extra special for me. It is such an honor to have guests like David on Great Women in Fraud because their experiences and generosity make the program so wonderful. The fact that you get to hear their stories is amazing. We will have David back and hopefully hear more about his dissertation and gender and counterproductive work behavior. That is a mouthful. We just call it embezzlement. Hint, hint, David. Thank you so much for taking time. Be sure and share this episode.